Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. I might start um, by getting each of you to introduce yourself. So, Sarah, did you want to um, introduce yourself first? Yeah, sure. So, hi, my name's Sarah. I'm the program manager of the Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation and Support Service, which is a, a statewide program of Harm Reduction Victoria. And um, we deal with pharmacotherapy consumer-related issues and operate across Victoria via 1800 um, phone number. Hi there, uh, my name's Yoni Crawford. I'm the uh, CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria. Um, I've also got lived experience of uh, the pharmacotherapy program here in Victoria and across Australia. Thank you. Um, so I might start, um, Siony, can you tell us about HR Victoria? Yep. So Harm Reduction Victoria is an organisation uh, which is known as a peer organisation. We're an organisation that's made up of people with lived and living experience um, of drug use, but we also provide uh, services to our community as well, especially quite innovative ones that our community really need. Uh, we were originally funded back in the HIV days to provide peer education and uh, support around HIV and hepatitis C prevention. Uh, but we've expanded a lot to do um, other pieces of work that our community really needs, such as the PAMS project program, I'm sorry, uh, the DanceWise program. We have FUSE, which is a, a living experience peer workforce support program and um, needle and syringe program, health promotion, whole range of things. Um, Sarah, can you um, tell us about your thoughts of HRVIC? Um, yeah, so I run the the, the PAMS service. So um, PAMS, as I said before, is Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation and Support, a long acronym. There's so many acronyms in pharmacotherapy, so we, I guess, joined in. Um, but PAMS has started off with like one, uh, one worker, one full-time worker, and we've now expanded. There's uh, four of us on the team. And basically what we do is sort of short-term solution-focused kind of case management. So we, we work with people who are either currently on a pharmacotherapy program or people who are opioid dependent and wanting to access a pharmacotherapy program. And when I say pharmacotherapy, I'm meaning methadone, suboxone, subutex or buprenorphine, buprenorphine, naloxone, and more recently, um, the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, buvidal and um, sublocade. So we've sort of got two kind of primary goals to PAMS. One is uh, resolving problems that can occur for people who are already on pharmacotherapy treatment. And the sorts of problems we end up kind of resolving are, are those that if, if they were kind of left unattended, could either result in the person not doing so well on the program or worst case scenario, dropping out of treatment altogether. And that might be stuff like the prescriber's unavailable for whatever reason, the script is expired, the pharmacy's not able to dispense that next dose or number of doses of medication, or maybe somebody's moving interstate or moving from one side of Victoria to another. Um, maybe somebody's not getting along very well with their current uh, prescriber and wants to either know how to address that. So there's, there's multiple issues, um, including travel, all sorts of things. Um, and then we also support people who are wanting to access treatment. So they might be struggling to find a prescriber in their local area. More recently, that's a, a quite a common problem. And then the other issue is people who are wanting to find a pharmacy. So it might be a pharmacy and a prescriber, or it might just be a pharmacy. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, Jenny, you were talking a little bit about some of the other or some of the services that HRV. Um, does. Can you tell us a little bit about them as well so people can know about the variety of services that you provide? Sure thing. So we have a great uh, health promotion team led by Jane Dicker and they undertake uh, like peer education workshops and one-on-one -on -one peer education uh, around bloodborne viruses like hepatitis C 
uh, in particular, so testing and treatment information, but also safer drug use and sort of um, safer um, injecting technique and things like that. So that's really all about harm reduction um, for people who inject drugs. Um, and, you know, they'll also do help us with doing events around awareness days like overdose day and provide do resources, um, uh, help do resources as well. Um, we have a, a comms team or a comms person, I should say, Sam Jones, and she does um, our magazine, which is called WAC. She also does a lot of our resources, the layout and, and um, social media as well, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other things. But it's really important for us to be able to speak directly to our community that we work with. And um, she helps all of us with, with doing that. Um, the health promotion team also does um, workforce trainings as well. I should add as well. So particularly things like working with people who use drugs, stigma and discrimination training, that kind of thing. Uh, DanceWise is our festival harm reduction service. So what they do is across the um, festival season in particular, um, they will go out to the multi-day festivals. They'll set up like um, a health promotion part uh, of the service where they'll sort of promote things like um, safer drug use, but also um, sunblock and water and all that sort of thing for people who are partying. But they also provide a, um, a care space. So people who are having a really bad time, um, whether it's to do with uh, drug use or whether it might be sometimes uh, to do with um, like short term relationship issues or mental health issues, will provide a care space for people and really take them into care and look after them. Um, and we're usually connected to the medical space as well. So it's um, looking after people who don't need medical care, but do need some care. And then we're also able to refer people through to medical care if that is what they need. Uh, and that, you know, that's to stop, uh, that's to help prevent um, negative experiences of drug use, but also um, overdose and that sort of thing. Uh, we also have an overdose program called DOPE, which is the Drug Overdose Prevention Education um, Program. And that's um, primarily about training people to use naloxone these days. Naloxone is, uh, as I'm sure your listeners will know, is the um, drug that can reverse opioid overdoses. But we also train people how to keep people uh, as safe and alive as possible, even without naloxone. So um, that's an important program. We also um, have the FUSE program, which is about supporting and training uh, lived and living experience peer workforce in harm reduction. So we call them the harm reduction peer workforce, and we have a community of practice, a group, uh, a, a network of people who get together and talk about issues that they face as peer workers. We also do training and um, are putting together sort of policies and procedures around having a peer workforce in your uh, organisation. So that's a piece of work that we're doing with the lived experience branch in the Department of Health. Um, and Sarah's talked about uh, PAMS, which is a really important uh, program as well. And I feel like I've covered everything now. Have I missed anything, Sarah? Yep, I think that's it. We also have a policy and advocacy program as well, and that's helped oh, us um, with doing um, reform work with the department, which we might be able to talk about a bit later, and also um, helping us with running the, uh, putting together and helping put together the harm reduction conference uh, here in the International Harm Reduction Conference here in Victoria recently. Uh, and Nick, Nick Kent is um, helping us build a sort of a policy and advocacy platform as well. Sorry about that. Thank you. Right, so um, Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Um, yep. So, what are your thoughts of the impact of the recent changes to the ODT funding? Yeah, okay, that's a really good question. Thanks, Carlene. Um, and look, Sioni, chip in here because I'm probably going to forget some of the most important stuff. Um, these changes are really monumental, and I mean, I, when they when we when they were announced, I, I kind of couldn't believe this has happened. It had happened. It was something that we'd been like literally fighting for and advocating for probably since the program got expanded out into the community sector, which was sort of, I guess, mid to late 80s uh, in response to the HIV epidemic, which is when this sort of $5 a day dosing fee kind of uh, sum came came about. Um, it, the program had been moved from, from public hospitals and into the community um, and understandably pharmacies weren't 
prepared to take on the additional amount of work without some sort of remuneration. And in all fairness, for that whole sort of 30, 35 years, most pharmacies, with a few exceptions, generally did to sort of pretty much charge in Victoria around about $5 a day. There were some outliers, of course. Um, so when it, when it happened, um, it did get announced sort of pretty quickly. It was announced in the Commonwealth budget that was handed down uh, this year. I think one of the one of the issues was that um, no one really knew that this was happening. There was a, a committee that I believe that well, I know there was a committee that was working with the Commonwealth government. Uh, on these changes, what they were going to be and implementing them, which was uh, fantastic. But I mean, I, I mean, I've been working in this sector for well over 20 years, and and I mean, I, I personally felt we kind of had not all that much notice. And I think pharmacists in particular have reported to me that there was a, very little, if any, consultation. They didn't feel that they were consulted. Um, around these reforms, what they were going to look like, how they were going to work. Um, and then that sort of everything, that the reforms came in on the 1st of July, 2023. And um, so there wasn't, there was a bit of a scramble in terms of getting everything together, sort of information for the consumer group. Um, there was a lot of, you know, there were well, not a lot, but there were a few forums, some targeting prescribers, some targeting pharmacists, some targeting both. There was a national forum through uh, AVIL, the National Drug User Organisation. Um, we developed a, a flyer that we got sort of sent out to every every pharmacy to inform the, the current consumer group about what was happening. And look, we had a few sort of hiccups. There were a few prescribers that were struggling with how to write the scripts in the first instance, um, because how the script is written is, is quite different to how it used to be written. There were some pharmacies that hadn't realised that they, they simply were not allowed to charge anything in addition to, you know, $7.30 for 28 days with a healthcare card and a Medicare card and um, a maximum of $30 for those with no healthcare card but who do have a Medicare card. Um, on the issue of the, the Medicare card, we do have a bit of a problem for people that, um, for whatever reason, be they asylum seekers or whatever, don't, it's not that they don't have a Medicare card, they're literally at this point in time ineligible to get one. The cost of the program for people who are not eligible for a Medicare card is quite phenomenal at the moment and that that really is um, a, a pretty big problem like it's a I think it's just over $500 a month as opposed to the previous figure which was around about I think 140 ish give or take per month um, so that's been tricky but I think in all fairness given the significance of these changes they've been really well received by the consumer group um, I mean we I guess ideally treatment would be there would be no cost to treatment but that's that's I guess that's not practical in this day and age you've got to pay for everything um but yeah so seven dollars thirty for people with a healthcare card was is is just so much better for 28 days as opposed to 140 dollars for 28 days is just um, awesome so really 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 well received by the pharmacotherapy consumer group I think a lot of pharmacists have have really supported the changes, but not necessarily how they were implemented. And look, I I, I get that. Um, yeah, we we do actually have about we had about twelve pharmacies across the state that had indicated that they were going to consider closing down the pharmacotherapy program at that pharmacy, and I believe that around about seven actually have gone through with that and, and ceased pharmacotherapy service delivery. But in all of those seven cases, there is another pharmacy close by that's agreed to take on the the consumer group from the pharmacy that's been closing. So that's 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 been good. But yeah, generally it's been good, but there've been a few hiccups, I guess. Thank you. Sione, can you tell us what your thoughts are of the impact of the recent changes to the ODT funding? 100%. I think uh, Sarah's covered it really well across the sector. I think that 
um, my reflections on it are likewise that the changes are fantastic for consumers and they've also happened really quickly and I know that chemists uh, have been hit by that sort of the hardest um, and but my my experience of my chemist anyway is that while it was really obvious that it was quite stressful initially things seem to have um, settled into a pattern now where um, it's it's hardly even sort of mentioned anymore. Um, I still haven't been charged since the changes happened um, because uh, I was in credit and I've, uh, the the chemist um, <clears throat> is 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 really waiting until um, uh, in, until I owe them something before before charging me, which is amazing. And I know that talking to some of the other clients of that chemist, um, they are like bowled over when they realize uh, what's happening because um, for me you know I've got a job and I've, I've been able to afford um, the dosing fees really for the last few years but I remember when it was really hard to pay them and you know for a lot of people that go to the chemist alongside me they they um, you know it's not that they can't pay the fees but it's just one more thing on top of you know um, you know food and rent and stuff and a lot of people are on on benefits, um, not everyone, but a lot of people are, and, and it makes a really big difference for them. And I think that's what I've sort of kept my mind on throughout this process, uh, our community really. Um, but I do know that it's been hard for for chemists, and I know even even for GPs and so forth. So um, you know, my GP um, didn't have the software changed, and I had an appointment on July 30, just before all the changes, June 30, sorry, just before all the changes happened, and um, you know that <clears throat> made a big difference to my uh, script, and we were, you know, there was a lot of confusion going backwards and forwards between me and the chemist and the GP. Uh, you know, so it it, it wasn't um, it, it, there weren't no hiccups, but at least in my experience, it's been pretty um, pretty okay. And the one thing I'd say is that um, the government, um, you know listened to the community when we talked to them nationally about about um what the biggest issue for people on pharmacotherapy was and it's overwhelmingly the the, the cost and so um it's quite amazing that this change has happened for the community notwithstanding all of the difficulties that it's caused we know for for our uh, friends and colleagues and in, in pharmacies especially thank you <laughs> And I find out, um, so Sione again, what issues did the previous system cause for people, whether accessing this program or not? So I think that some of the things that happened for people uh, related to dosing fees was that in the worst case scenario, you know, uh, it stopped them getting dosed. Um, sometimes people would get themselves to so much debt and um, that they would feel like they couldn't go into the chemist any longer, or it's at a certain point the pharmacist, you know, um, felt like they had to bring in certain measures to get money back from people. Um, and I know that that um, was probably an extreme situation, but in most in the most extreme circumstances, you know, people would stop their treatment. Um, and uh, although that, thankfully, um, I mean, you know, Pam, our PAMS program. Um, had that had to quite regularly kind of work out repayment schedules and that sort of thing with with clients and Sarah would be able to speak to that but uh, I know that um, it was really just an ongoing issue for some people um, because when you sort of think about how much you actually get on the dole for instance it's it's only a couple hundred dollars um, and if you're paying sort of 30 40 50 dollars on for pharmacotherapy that's quite a big chunk of that money especially as you know we've, we all know that um, the cost of living has increased over the last couple of years and uh, quite dramatically and so um, you know the worst case scenario people were definitely making choices between pharmacotherapy or food you know pharmacotherapy or, or um, rent um, and we've got to remember that this <clears throat> community is often very marginalized um, and um, you know, have 
you know, have had circumstances in their lives which mean they may not have savings, they may not have sort of like a safety net for when they're for, for when they're on the dole and whatnot. Um, and pharmacotherapy is not just a drug treatment, but also a harm reduction um, um, a harm reduction uh, program as well, in my opinion. And um, the worst case scenario is that people uh, would not be able to use would not be able to uh, use the pharmacotherapy program, but would be able to um, move off and um, start using again. And if they were, you know, using when they're not used to it, then overdose risks can occur and things like that. So, you know, if this pro if if funding the pharmacotherapy program can lead to more treatment retention and more sort of um, treatment continuity, uh, then it's going to be safer for people as well as cheaper, in my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah, ab ab yeah abs absol absolutely. And I just wanted to, I think, yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Sioni. And, you know, people paying 11 to 15% of their entire Centrelink income on one medication and the the inequity of that was is 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 really striking, and I think that was the the biggest problem. But not only that, it's the ripple effect, it's the impact of this significant cost on one medication that is a drug of dependence. So you can't just say, oh well, look, I won't get it that month. Sure, it might not, I might not be as feeling as good. It's it's something you absolutely have to have. So the ripple effect from people having to pay this significant cost on pharmacotherapy dosing fees on their kids, on their relatives, on, you know, their, their quality of life. I mean, if it, it's, it's literally, it was literally so bad to the point that if somebody, you know, needed a, a new pair of shoes, it, it would be difficult to afford something as, as basic as that, you know, and, and these were the sorts of issues that we were dealing with, with clients and, and it always, it always struck me as so unfair that the the people on the lowest incomes, in order to be on pharmacotherapy, you had to be the most expert at budgeting, and that just that just seems wrong. You know, it's not fair. And look, you know, people are dealing with multiple other issues. Sometimes it's mental health issues, multiple drug dependencies. You know, the the list goes on. But I think apart from that, um, one of the things that I've noticed through through working at PAMS is the the, detriment, the detrimental impact that the cost of pharmacotherapy had on the relationship between the consumer and the, the pharmacist. And I think pharmacists felt that they were constantly having to nag people to, to pay and that really impacted on that. The, the, the ability for the pharmacist to develop a, a good sort of healthy therapeutic relationship with the pharmacotherapy consumers. And I think consumers very much felt um, the same way that it was often, you know, I've I've had, you know, people on programs say to me, you know, it's just it's just all about the money with that pharmacist, you know, every time, not how I how you're going, um, it's are you going to pay today, and you know that's just it, it's just awful for everybody. There's no there's no winners there, so I think they're they're the the two things that I just wanted to um, point out really. Thank you. Um, so I might start with you. With this. How have have you had any feedback from pharmacies after the changes? Yes. So I mean, it was a bit a, a bit all sort of chaotic at the beginning. The scripts had to be transitioned. So any script that was still uh, valid on the 1st of July. So a, a pharmacotherapy script that had been written prior to the 1st of July, those scripts all needed to be transitioned across to the, the new system so that the pharmacists could bill the Commonwealth government through the PPA portal, which they could do once, they could transition all the valid scripts once. And that reduced the need for, you know, everybody in the whole country requiring uh, an appointment with a pharmacotherapy prescriber on the 1st of July, which apart from the fact that it was a Saturday, it was just not sort of practicable. Um, so, and there was also a privacy statement that needed to be signed by uh, everybody on a, on a program. But look, I think, you know, we've, we've got through all of this. I think most pharmacies, bar the seven, that for whatever, uh, for a number of different reasons have chosen to close their program, 
I think in most cases it's settled down. I've certainly received a number of pharmacies actually saying to me, look, you know, we've got lots of capacity. We're, we're open to taking on new people. If you've got anybody that's looking for a pharmacy, we've got capacity, at, you know, here, there or wherever, which is fantastic. We've also had new pharmacies that have previously not um, been approved as a pharmacotherapy dosing point come on board and join the program. And that's been fantastic. We have had seven, as I said before, we have had these seven which have uh, chosen to um, close their pharmacotherapy program. I think one of the, the difficulties, which I should have mentioned earlier, is actually the, the timing of when this came in. So it's kind of coincided with the 60-day um, the dispense. So that's um, going to hit pharmacies quite hard on their bottom line. And what that's kind of resulted in that, you know, pharmacies that have got other sort of health related programs that are kind of pretty close to their bottom line, just in terms of uh, time and staff resources and that sort of thing may have to be um, sort of, you know, closed, which is really unfortunate. It's, it's quite interesting from one Australian jurisdiction to um, another in in Victoria, we have like primarily a, a, a community model of pharmacotherapy service delivery. Um, so it is all community pharmacy, and by and large, um, you know what what other states call private prescribers. So either a general practitioner or a nurse practitioner is the one writing the the scripts. We don't have sort of big public clinics, which are sort of centres where people will get their dose and their script from the one place that that doesn't really exist in Victoria. Um, so yeah, the timing is is what I think is going to hit hit pharmacies hard, just that it has come in with the, the, the 60 day dispense, which I know all the listeners to this podcast would be acutely aware of. I think, um, yeah, the, the feedback that I've got from my chemist in particular is um, that uh, you know, kind of disbelief at the um, lack of implementation planning. But apart from that, it's been really positive. Um, and, um, you know, especially the um, pharma, especially now after a couple of months and, um, you know, the it's we're still sort of having conversations how it's great for particular, you know, especially for particular clients that um, they've sort of, almost felt guilty about having to take money off in the past. I think that um, that's been really uh, interesting. And, um, you know, in a way, I, you know, we, we sort of have a two-tier system where, you know, I don't have a healthcare card, so I'll be paying a little bit more. And I think that's, you know, that's okay. Uh, and that's, you know, if you've got a job and whatnot, I think that um, you can't qualify for a healthcare card. I think it's appropriate that we pay more. And I'm really glad that, you know, the people who are on benefits are, are paying less. And I think a lot of the pharmacists mm. really do recognise that too. Thank you. Um, so I might start with you. Um, any suggestion to pharmacists about how to make the process more manageable? Well, we've got a, um, a poster that we can um, send out to people and they can put up on their walls. Isn't that right, Sarah? Um, yep, absolutely. And um, that sort of answers some of the basic questions for, for, for customers as well while they're either waiting for their dose or, or, or whatever. Um, I think that um, my, my, my feeling is that from our end, it's quite simple. Um, and in fact, some of the trickiest stuff is actually making sure that the GP uh, writes the script correctly, but I think they've got their uh, software sorted now, so that shouldn't be a problem. I think that um, probably the the one thing I would say is that, um, to explain why we have to sign a privacy document and you know the reasons for that because uh, people often do feel a bit strange about signing those sort of things. So maybe don't just drop that under someone's nose and say sign that, but explain a little bit what it's there for. I think people, most people will be pretty. Uh, okay with that um yeah but you know i sort of i don't envy them necessarily but people new people going on to the program now uh it's quite amazing to think that they will never have to sort of pay the 80 dollars a week for instance that i used to pay in when i was in sydney I used to pay 80 bucks a week at a private at a private clinic 
Um, and I certainly was not earning a huge amount of money back then. It was a real problem. So I really, <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, people entering the chemist now have really only got the privacy thing to worry about and the fact that they need to have a Medicare card. Yeah, and I mean, look, pharmacists have sort of said to me that there's, a, you know, there's a few little things that they can do to sort of make it make it easier. I had a pharmacist telling me that um, once you've entered everything into the PPA portal, all you need to do is enter the 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 consumer or the client's Medicare card number, and it just uh, auto fills. Um, but I mean, I think you know, I'm, I, to make this new sort of system work best for, for pharmacists, given that I'm not actually sort of doing it and using the software. I'm probably the, the last person to to have any kind of tips for pharmacists. But I think, look, I think this is just, I, I, I'm really looking forward to the relationship between the consumer and the pharmacist um, improving. And now we've got equity in terms of cost with all other medicines on the PBS and I just think this is absolutely brilliant and so you know so well received when I've told people that you know this is what the the program's going to cost they're just like you you what you're kidding me but I thought it was $30 a week like people are just they they almost have to pinch themselves they just can't quite believe it that's cool it's really good Thank you. Um, so I might ask you, um, what do you think the perfect program would look like for you? And are we far away from it now? I'll answer the second part Ooh, first. We're we might have different ideas on this. <laughs> we're, a very long way, we're a very long way away from the perfect program for me. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. The reason for that is uh, not so much, well, so where will I start? So I think that... I think that the pharma, like, I'll be about to get philosophical here, but I think the pharmacotherapy program suffers a little bit because it has multiple goals and people don't necessarily all agree about those multiple goals. So for some people, I'm not just talking about consumers, I'm just talking about government, uh, pharmacists, doctors, consumers, everyone. Um, we all have slightly different conceptions and understanding of what the program's for. And for a lot of people who use drugs, it's a harm reduction uh, program and it stops them being sick, but they just continue to use drugs. Um, and for some people, that's, you know, for some doctors and pharmacists and whatnot, that's not the point of the program. The point of the program is abstinence focus and that you should be angling towards coming off the program eventually as well. And being abstinent and other people think it's a maintenance program that you can that you should and it's most beneficial to stay on for a very long time so there are lots of different ideas about the program speaking for myself personally what would work the absolute best for me personally would probably be um at least for most of, <clears throat> most of the time i've been on pharmacotherapy anyway it may not be like this forever but what would have been good for a long time would have been sort of like an injectables program um, one of the things that I found the trickiest um, about maintaining um, on the program was um, was to do with not using it and that wasn't something that I wanted to do for a long time. So uh, I think that um, one of the only reasons that I, um, you know, used on top of the program was because I, I um, wasn't you know, the pharmacotherapy program wasn't quite meeting what I wanted at that time. Um, but in my opinion, you know, there are heroin programs and so forth around the world. And I think that that for me for a long time would have been a really positive thing. Um, on the other hand, I think that we have a, actually quite a punitive approach to pharmacotherapy in Australia in general. Um, so not every clinician and not every pharmacist behaves like that, but there is sort of like um, a sense that, you're lucky to get takeaways you're lucky to have unsupervised um, doses and that these are dangerous and that we um, need to control risk instead of thinking you know sometimes you know a lot of clinicians do think about them more about freeing people up um, but when you have to do your own drug screens and things like that to maintain your um, 
maintain your takeaway doses. It can sort of make you feel very sort of surveilled. Uh, and no matter how long you've been on the program, you just don't really ever feel trusted. And I think that uh, for me, a perfect program would actually be something like Fisetone or an injectables program that I would be able to get a month or more unsupervised dosing so that I don't have to go to the chemist every day, so that I don't have to kind of deal with it every time, but actually can manage my own medication as an adult. And I think we're a very long way away from, 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 from that being the program, to be honest. Yeah. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Well, I think I think it would be really good to be able to have, I think we need a hell of a lot more choice in treatment. I definitely support full agonist um, injectable opioids for people who don't want to stop using heroin. Um, as an example, a, you know, a heroin program, but if there was flexibility so that you could choose the treatment and there would be multiple treatment types, you could choose the treatment that was going to work best for you at that point in time. And I think it is so much about, you know, the right, the right treatment type, the right person, the right time, the right dose delivered in the right way by the right people without any judgment. And I think people still suffer from a hell of a lot of, of judgment, which is it's just unnecessary, like, yeah, completely unnecessary. But I think it would be really good if people were able to have a lot more freedom. Like, you know, why can't you go into any pharmacy, swipe a card and get a dose? Mm. And that's just, you know, that that should be that you should be able to do that anywhere in Australia. And then people would be able to travel. I think absolutely increased takeaway doses, um, you know, for for people that that need them. And I think it's, you know, I think is, as Sioni said, why can't we have up to a one month supply of, um, you know, methadone, for example? So um, it's really interesting, you know. I um I see the same people at the chemist when I pick up my takeaways each week, and um, you know. They, without a so at least three of them, without a doubt, they actually self-regulate their unsupervised doses like really well. Like they don't always pick up everything that they're um, able to. And when I talk to them about that, it's nearly always because they're either going through a circumstance where they're like, I don't actually want to pick up all my takeaways at once because right now I feel a bit like, you know, I really want to use them all, so I'm not going to do that. And, you know, it's... I think people who use drugs actually think about often actually do think about the way that they use drugs. And they also people on pharmacotherapy think about how they use pharmacotherapy. And it's not I think sometimes we um, are not giving given responsibility for our own medications. And so um, it's difficult then to take responsibility for your medications. And I think, you know, clearly that people are in different circumstances and, and you have and as Sarah said, you need to people need to have the program tailored for them ind individually. And it's not always the case that everyone should get, you know, unsupervised doses and it should all be a free for all. I don't mean that, but I just think that when you've been on a program for a long time and never done any kind of anything to make uh, anyone suspicious about your motivations and behaviours, then it's crazy that we still have to kind of jump through all the same hoops as we did in the first year of being on the program. The long-acting injectable buprenorphine. What has the uptake been and how are the people and pharmacies describing the process? Okay, so part of the issue with the long-acting injectable buprenorphine is that up until uh, the 30th of November, I think, it's still predominantly being provided through GP clinics. So the GP clinic can uh, order directly from the pharmaceutical wholesaler, providing the clinic has got a health services permit and an SA approved drug safe on site to store their in uh, depot units. Um, after the 30th of November, medical clinics will need to uh, have a relationship with community pharmacy and all the depot products will need to go through community pharmacy. So we're not at that point yet. There are some community pharmacies which have done the 
done the training and are approved to administer the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, we very much need uh, more pharmacies that are willing to, to get on board because that would definitely increase access to the long-acting injectable bup for those that uh, that want it. it for, for those who don't have a Medicare card, the long-acting injectable buprenorphine is, is quite expensive. I think each unit costs about $350, and that's just for the medication alone. Um, pharmacies are going to be reimbursed. It's not a huge amount of money, but it is an amount of money if they do agree to administer the long-acting injectable buprenorphine. But look, in terms of uptake amongst the consumer group, I think those that want the injection, it's it look, it was really interesting. When it was first rolled out, we had great difficulty actually finding out from anybody, like, what is it like, you know, who's, what, what's your experience of, of having it? We were getting this sort of, it's absolutely brilliant was the, the word that we were hearing from prescribers, but it was really difficult to hear anything. So I thought, well, if we're not hearing anything bad, that's kind of got to be a good thing. And then slowly, gradually, um, I guess some of the more negative responses started to kind of filter through. Um, it's it's very well supported by uh, prescribers. It's an incredibly safe option for the prescriber. Like nobody's likely to use many, if any, other opioids, and it's it's very unlikely that anybody's you know going to overdose on a um, on acting injectable buprenorphine uh, alone. Um, I guess from a consumer perspective, it is incredibly painful to have administered. One of the, the products is a lot more painful than the other, I believe, but it is that that's not great. But then, you know, the Suboxone film doesn't taste awesome either is the other thing that we hear. But look, I think it's a great adjunct to treatment. What worries me is there's a, such a big push towards it to the point that it's getting difficult to find prescribers to start or restart people on methadone. And that that worries me. And again, it's back to that treatment choice. It's got to be the right treatment for the right person at the right time in their life. That that's what works. I am nervous about there being only one treatment option. Um, because if that's the injection, I, I know right, that's not going to suit everybody. And I think that that choice of treatment is a choice that needs to be made by the consumer in, in conjunction with their prescriber. But it's when, no, we will not start the one methadone. That's not going to happen. Which happens. It, absolutely. We've got clinics that are, that's that's how they're operating. We, I've also got, you know, people that I know personally who have tried to get on methadone and have been while they ended up being able to be on methadone, they were asked no less than six or seven times by the prescriber whether or not they wouldn't rather be on long-acting injectable bu. And over the course of a few days and appointments, that is basically trying to wear someone down. And I think that is unacceptable for a starter. And secondly, the risk profile may be lower for the prescriber. That's great. But the number of examples of people who, yes, have stopped using opioids, but have started using other drugs and, frankly, gone down the gurgler, um, are, there are many, many examples of that, and both in yeah. my life and and, 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 through, and that we know through Harm and Victoria, who um, felt pressure to go on to lab, either by a partner or by their prescriber. And sure, the urine drug screenings and stuff didn't come back. You know, they maybe they reported not using opioids any longer, but they sure as hell were using ice and, uh, you know, other drugs as well. And so you can't really say that's successful, but may maybe in terms of like the questions they're being asked by their prescriber, like, uh, you know, are you feeling okay? Are your opioids, how's your opioid use and stuff like that? Well, maybe they're, it's coming back as successful, but when they're talking to us, it's quite another story. So there's two components there that really worry me. One is people um, feeling pressured to go on it because of the risk profile, because it means they don't have to go to the chemist every day, because it's just what's available. And then the other side of it is people who um, maybe feel like they, it was a great idea to go on it, 
um, but they're actually not ready to stop using drugs completely and so transfer their drug use to drinking or to, um, to methamphetamine and and are not in any better spot and I just think you know there are some real gaps in our pharmacotherapy program um, and, and one of them is the capacity for people to be completely honest with their prescribers and their chemists because of the fear of of, of what's going to happen in terms of the punitive nature of things like I said before losing your takeaways or just getting in trouble and um, being you know being seen as someone that you don't want to be seen as and so yeah it's it's one of the big gaps that I think labor is kind of showing and on the other hand it's fantastic for people who, who who for whom it's the right treatment as well though so yeah but I think just to add to that I you know there, there is a bit of methadone fear out there since we've had the LAIB particularly amongst pharmacotherapy service providers but I just, I really want to reinforce the number of lives that methadone has saved, the number of people that methadone has kept alive um, is, you know, we cannot forget that because it far outweighs, far, far outweighs anyone that's died from methadone-related overdose. So, I would genuinely sooner go back to using than go on to on go on to Butte for a whole range of reasons that I, don't, I won't go into here, but... For me, I, I tried buke and it just didn't work. So, you know, it's not like we haven't tried different options, but, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, I guess just to reiterate what Sarah said, like it's about treatment choice. And I know that most of the drug companies and so forth who are promoting these things sort of talk about choice for treatment for, for patients, sorry. Um, and that's great. But I think prescribers have to come to the party on that too. 100%. Um, I thought I'd ask about your thoughts on naloxone uptake as well. Um, so people getting it from pharmacies and keeping it, I thought I'd find out what feedback you'd heard. Sure. So, um, so the great thing in Victoria is that we have got that we have got plans for a take-home naloxone program that you, people will be able to access through Needland syringe programs in the next few months. That's great. But the Commonwealth program where it's available through chemists is also great when it's available. So we've done some, um, so one thing that I would strongly kind of urge pharmacists is that if they are um, registered, the chemist is registered with the Commonwealth program, that they, um, that all of the staff in the, in the chemists know that and that um, it's, it's made available to people when they access because we did a piece of work between, before the harm reduction conference and we, found out all of the uh, chemists that were within walking distance of the conference centre that were registered for naloxone provision through the Commonwealth program and of the um, 20 or so chemists there were only three or four that actually uh, responded to our phone call telling us that we that they did in fact have naloxone um, so there's a bit of a disconnect there somewhere it's an awesome program but it needs to be available for people and people need to trust that it's available or else they just will stop using it so it's it's a, um, a another fantastic program that maybe implementation could just be a little bit ramped up, um, but it's a really great thing. And, and um, to all the chemists out there who do supply naloxone, thank you so much because we we use chemists for naloxone for our um, programs and also so do our community. So it's really important life saving medication. Naloxone everywhere, no judgment, freely available. And in the context of pharmacotherapy, I think that it should be like every every person on pharmacotherapy and every person who's on a script of opioids should be able to access naloxone um, and for their family to know how to use it because most overdoses are accidental and um, most overdose deaths actually, I think I'm correct in saying, has come from prescribed opioids. So. And you mentioned before um, reform work with the government. Maybe I'll speak really generally. So I know that really generally speaking, the Victorian government is looking at a piece of reform work around the uh, opioid dependence treatment program in Victoria, um, because we all know that there are massive shortages of uh, prescribers in particular in Victoria. And so Harm Reduction Victoria uh, has been working alongside um, the Department of uh, Health 
um, to uh, start looking into um, the ways that uh, we can, you know, start talking to uh, experts around the state, um, as well as consumers and people with lived experience as to, um, you know, how we can reshape our pharmacotherapy program. So I can probably say that. <laughs> yeah. We so, are dreadfully short of prescribers without a without a We always need more pharmacies to, to come on board um funding the therapy in Victoria. And look, ideally, every single farm I've always wanted every single pharmacy to just provide pharmacotherapy. And then that way the, the consumer has a huge choice and can go to whatever whatever pharmacy. And I think that that would be ideal. At the moment, it is is very much an opt in system so it's only certain pharmacies that are approved and i think that is a bit problematic um but ideally every single medical clinic would have at least well ideally two pharmacotherapy prescribers great good start good start but that's a start is there anything else you wanted to share um, from your experiences that I haven't asked about or from your lived experiences, experiences as CEO working for HRVK? Yeah, just any last sentiments, I guess. Um, I think that to be optimistic and positive for my last sentiment, I would say um, that by and large, I think that what, what I've noticed is that um, many, many, many prescribers and pharmacists who are involved in the pharmacotherapy program do it from a sense of social justice or from a sense of um, wanting to contribute somehow to society. And I think that's um, like fantastic. Uh, I also think that um, if we are to, ref if, you know, moving forwards, I think that um, listening to people with lived and living experience, uh, listening to their experiences of the pharmacotherapy program and actually making changes that uh, will benefit both us and also um, prescribers and chemists. I think uh, if we could find that sweet spot, it would be it would be perfect because, as Sarah said, this program is so desperately important to so many people every day. I think there's around 15,000 people in Victoria alone that rely on it every day, and I'm one of them, and it's not like any other medication, I can tell you that right now, um, and that – you know, if we can find a sweet spot where it works for everyone, then, I mean, uh, um, then that will be ideal. Yeah. Here, here, really. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I think people are going to get a lot from your insights. Hey, thank, thank you so, you so much. much. It's awesome. It's really good to talk. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.